Welcome to the FinTech Combine, everyone. I am Chris Kovacs, your host, the founder and CEO of Constellation Digital Partners. And this is the series where we talk with and sometimes about community-based institutions, the technology they're implementing, and the FinTechs that they are working with. Today, we're talking with David Nohi, the founder and CEO of Fingol, about the CFPB's proposed 1033 open banking rule. So if you're ready, let's suit up and get out on the field. David, thank you very much for joining us today on the FinTech Combine. I really appreciate you taking time out of your super busy schedule to meet with us. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and about Fingal? Yeah, happy to. Chris, thank you so much for having me today. Um, my name is David Noe. I'm CEO here at Fingal. Uh, we're headquartered just outside Boulder, Colorado. I'm calling in from our offices here. And we are in the business of better understanding members based on how they spend their money and make their money, both at your institution and at the other banks and credit unions and even non-FIs that they have financial relationships with. We bring in data from all those sorts of places, uh, build a profile of that member, and then determine what they need next from you. I am most familiar with your services as it relates to data aggregation, right? Is that what you mean by building profiles of members' data that aren't with the institution? That's right. So we need data that, as, as we know, like the typical American has relationships with something like seven, eight, nine different financial institutions and brands. And try as we might, nobody has 100% wallet share on 100% of their membership. So we discovered that in trying to build a profile of the member, again, based on how they spend their money and make their money, we needed visibility to where they're spending their money and making their money at other FIs. Right. So if let's say a credit union only has uh, an indirect auto loan with a member, uh, but all of their deposit behavior, all of their card behavior, all of their investments and other uh, debt is at other FIs, we need to make it really, really easy to bring that data in when it's natural within the member's experience. So, you know, that's that's a lot of the tech that we build, Chris, around open banking um, account aggregation, uh, just making it easier to get the data into your FI, and then also making it easier to get your data out of the FI to comply with things like 1033. So in addition to being able to gather some additional information about the member spend, you're also an enabling technology, right? You have a lot of, you, you enable credit unions to provide additional services. What are the types of services that would use uh, the data that you're gathering with Fingal? Yeah, so if, if we start with just the data that belongs to the user, we're talking about account data, that's account routing number, um, account balances, account history, transactions, interest rates, um, holdings, things like that, deposit history. So the, 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 the primary uses of that are, number one, members need to move money between accounts. We know that, right? So just A to A payments uh, and setting up payments for their new loans that they have with the credit union. Those are the primary use cases. Not like that's like not number one and number one A, right? Is just moving my own money as a member. Then it gets to all right. Now let's say I want to apply for a new account, whether it's a loan or a deposit account or something else. Part of that is you're going to want to verify my identity and maybe even my assets if you're underwriting me. And one of the easiest ways to do both is again to link the accounts that I have at other institutions so that you can see that all of my identity information that I've uploaded and shared with you as part of my application to open a new account matches all of my information at my other FIs. 
And you can see my financial history over there. You can see, oh, this isn't just a a zombie account someplace that I opened up as some sort of like synthetic identity, fake fraud crap. No, I have years and years of income going on over at my old at my old institution. I've got credit cards linked. I've got brokerage accounts. I've got a mortgage, all of that sort of thing, right? So that you can see that I am who I say I am. You can see my financial history. And then where it gets really exciting is using um, our analytics tech on top of that data, figuring out what the member needs next and where you as their new credit union can offer them really, really competitive offers to bring in their deposits, to bring in their their card behavior or even their wealth over into your credit union. Now, you mentioned open banking. Is 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 what you just described open banking or does open banking really take it a, a step further? That's a, that's a great question, Chris. So let's, let's try to define what open banking is and what it isn't. Um, Broadly, open banking means a couple of things. Number one, it is inclusive of the concept that the individual end user owns their data and they own their financial data, right? Without that kind of realization uh, or acceptance, open banking doesn't really work. So you kind of need that as, as a foundational piece, that the member's data belongs to them, even though it might be held inside of various different financial institutions. So that's number one, the member's data belongs to them. Number two, the member is in control of how they share their data subject to some rules around like security, safety, that kind of thing. And so if I want to share my data, let's say that I have over at a, a large national bank with a credit union that I'm applying for a loan with, my old bank can't block me from doing that. So um, if, if, if you've done anything either as an individual consumer or in building new tech inside of a credit union, you've seen folks like MX, Yodley, Plaid, Finicity, Akoya, that are all in this space of making it easier for a, a end user to link to their old account and bring it into a new place, right? So open banking is really kind of encapsulates that. And then now, and I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit, uh, there are some new rules being proposed by the CFPB that is requiring uh, FIs to not just stop trying to block data being, being, being pulled from their institutions, but more importantly, it's requiring a whole bunch of rules around how can that data be shared? What can that data be used for? Um, it's eliminating screen scraping and doing a whole bunch of other interesting stuff that's really gonna change a lot of the um, FI to FI level data infrastructure um, in the industry. That's, and we're going to talk a lot about 1033 because I think that's certainly where um, there's a lot of discussion right now to be had. But help me understand, does what, 1033 is a proposed rule by the CFPB, right? This is not law yet. What's the track record look like or what's the timeline look like for this to be to move beyond a recommendation and be something that the institutions themselves have to um, have to account for? Yeah. So let's talk about what is in 1033 and then we'll get to timelines. Mm -hmm. So the, the broad scope of 1033 says that if you are a financial institution or if you are a financial brand providing some bank-like functionality, so that's deposit accounts, saving accounts, debit cards, or credit cards. Those are the, re those are the big ones that they're focusing on first. Mm -hmm. You need to enable your users to share their data into other safe and secure places through what are called the data aggregators. And there's some standards that are being proposed by CFPB. We'll get into more details in a minute, but, but to answer your question about timeline. So it is a proposed rule. 
there will certainly be some court um, fights about whether or not the CFPB is in or outside of its scope to even be allowed to do this. Right. But I wouldn't bet against the CFPB enabling this to happen, right, and, and it getting approved. I wouldn't bet on, you know, what a future election cycle might have because eventually it's going to happen anyway. Um, and I think there's some really important market forces that – really make it to a, a, a community institution's advantage to, to start thinking about this in their 24 and 25 strategic plans now, mm -hmm. rather than waiting to see you know, the outcome of some election cycle and then being behind the eight ball compared to the competition. Um, but so just, just, to, just to sum up and answer your question, it is a draft rule right now. Mm -hmm. It is going through what is called um, uh, the rulemaking and comment period right now. So the first draft was put out. Um, Interested parties are, are submitting their first round of comments by the end of this year. Um, and then the CFPB can, if they want, take those comments into consideration, make some tweaks, make some changes. Uh, but the earliest that the rules will be finalized looks like um, late next year. Yeah. Do you think the implementation of whatever the net result of this proposed 1033 rule is, do you think it... Do you think it has a, a separation between expectations for larger institutions and smaller institutions, right? Because in the same way that, for example, yeah. Dodd-Frank, right, mm -hmm. has a break at that $10 billion in mm -hmm. assets level, right? Because I, I think it could be reasonable to say to a $10 billion and larger organization, you need to have the technology in place to be able to support this kind of data transfer, data access, right? Yep. Talking to a credit union who has a $50 million asset base yeah. may not have the same tool sets available to them. So do you think that there's going to, or has there been a proposed separation based on institution size uh, or does it fall on the vendors themselves who are providing some of these core services to uh, ensure that they're added to their existing product sets? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So the current state of the draft says that all FIs of any size are going to be impacted and fall under the scope of, of, the, of the rule. Having said that, they, they do break out different tiers by asset size or for neobank's revenue size mm -hmm. um, for how fast you have to implement this. So you've got up to 48 months for institutions under, uh, they chose oddly 850 million in asset size is their, oh, okay. is their current smallest size. So 800, 850 and under, you get 48 months from the, from the issuing of the final rule. Right. Um, and the only way that you can get out of it is if you don't have a digital experience. So if you're already so small that you never invested in digital anyway, you're right. exempt. But really, I think, I think the, the thinking at the CFPB, uh, and talking to some friends over there is that if you have online banking anyway, and the data is available, aggregators have already been in the business of screen scraping you. Mm -hmm. And it's been kind of a cat and mouse game. Sometimes they do it in a way that is okay with the institution. Other times they rack up all sorts of um, like server fees and all sorts of other things, right? Nobody wants mm -hmm. to be screen scraped. And so the CFPB is, is really clear that if you're going to have digital banking, your data, your digital data should be available to your end user. And it should be available securely through the rails that they are suggesting rather than the alternative, which was being screen scraped. And so I, I don't suspect that we're going to see that smaller institutions are going to be full-on exempt. But I think more likely than that, you could make an argument for maybe dollars being made available for them 
um, or, or other or other sorts of ways to finance the cost. Um, but at the end of the day, it's got it, it has to be there, right? And I don't I I don't suspect that they're going to just exempt institutions under a certain asset size forever. Is this in some way a response to the very large national banks that have in some cases blocked data access services like Plaid from being able to access their transactions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a, little, a little inside baseball. Um, right now at the largest institutions in the U.S., you've got kind of two different paths being taken prior to this rule. One is most of the largest FIs have said, okay, open banking is coming. Um, we don't want to be screen scraped anyway. We want to be a party to this data. We want to know that a user is authing in. We want to know where the data is going, which is really valuable. And I want to get to that in a minute. Where the data is going is actually like its own incredibly insightful set of, of data to attack. Um, and we want to be able to turn off access if somebody has a security breach or things like that. And we want to give the end user, most importantly, the ability to see where their data is going and give them the ability to turn it on and off. Okay, so that's what you're seeing, the chases, the B of A's um, of, of the world all going down that path. You have a smaller set of big guys that um, got together and said, okay, we know that open banking is coming, but we want really strict controls over it. We want to be able to monetize the data coming out of our institution. And if you don't play ball with us, we're going to block you. And that's what happened with Fidelity and, and Plaid recently. So, so Plaid's access to all Fidelity accounts have been shut off. And there was an announcement. It's been delayed until um, like early Q2 of next year. But PNC was planning to do, is planning to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, they haven't updated their plans since the new rules came out. But we'll see what happens. Here's the thing, though. So number one, the new rules say that you cannot, as an institution, monetize or put up paywalls uh, blocking basic access to your customer's data. If your customer wants to share their data out, you can't charge the customer for that and you can't charge anybody else in the data flow simply to access that data, okay? Um, and again, this is only in scope for consumer deposit accounts and consumer card accounts. Um, other types of commercial are not impacted. Wealth is not currently impacted. Um, loans are not even impacted yet. So that's really important. Um, but it, the, the rules also kind of put a really strict scope that say that it's only around a certain type of basic access to that data. And there's nothing stopping an FI from, from charging access for premium APIs that give you extra data that's outside of the scope of what the CFPB is requiring or is giving you that data faster. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So the CFPB wildly actually says that the API call and response time can't take more than three and a half seconds. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I both know that three and a half seconds is a long time when we're talking about long API time. calls, right? Long time. And in a user flow, you might have multiple calls and responses in a, you know, between, between APIs. So that can add up really, really quickly. Some okay? cores would require that just based on the, the structure of their APIs. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so there, there's a world where, where aggressive FIs or opportunistic FIs could charge access for not just premium data, but also faster access to that data, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I see that there's still something like that coming um, and, might, and might be available. What, what type of data is covered by the proposed rule? More than we thought. 
So to, to, today in account aggregation land, as I shared, you get, you get access to account details, identity, so like name, address, maybe email address if it's on file with the other FI. Um, you don't, there's not like social security number or anything like that. You might get date of birth sometimes. Um, and um, uh, transaction data. So that's you bought and hold you 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 bought and sold a, a a stock in a wealth account. It could be a ACH traffic. It could 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 be card transactions. Anything that is in that transaction ledger is currently kind of in scope in account aggregation. However, what they're adding, which Plaid doesn't even have, no nobody has this stuff today. So this is all kind of new stuff that the CFPB is asking for. Um, number one, not just um, access to your fee schedule. So over the APIs. Any single account has to make available the fee schedules associated with those accounts, which is wild. If you're thinking about mm. if you've got an account that is has fewer fees and is more user friendly, say, for 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 regular folks than what they might have at, at a Wells Fargo, you can now over API when they link an account or you will be be able to see every single set of fees that they have. And then you could let them know what you have that's better than that, which is really, really interesting, right? That's super powerful. Um, current state, um, things like interest rates are kind of hard to get and don't typically come over, say, any of the existing open banking rails, uh, but they are required. They, they have to be there. Transaction level fees are in scope. So if they have a certain transaction, say, overseas, and there is a, a international fee charge that needs to be called out as like metadata within that transaction. Wild, wild wow. stuff, right? And then the, the coolest one that I think is just like, I can't believe they went this far as rewards. So right now, nobody is really good at aggregating um, reward transactions in history. There's a couple of small companies that try to play at it and they do some screen scraping with some of the big guys, your Amex, your Chases, et cetera. Um, but nobody does it for the entire industry because it's really hard and messy data to get at. Yeah. And so CFPB is trying to say, hey, uh, we want the, the the reward data belongs to the user too. The rewards are theirs. They already have all sorts of rules about how you can issue rewards and and, and also like tax consequences. All of that already exists. Now they're saying when a user links their account, the user needs to be able to share an entire transaction history of their rewards and the reward structure for that account, which is just wild. Holy cow. That's That's... It seems invasive. I mean, just uh, I'm as an old maybe maybe I'm an old school credit union guy in that way, right? Like the the thought of we had to fight the cores just for them to recognize that we had the right to the data that was sitting inside the core system. Like taking that and then opening that up for inspection seems like an overreach. Yeah, I mean, I. <sighs> You know, I, I know we have a lot of credit unions that listen, and so you know, reach out to your state and um, organizations or regional organizations in the NCUA for you know to, to share your opinions on it. They're all filing um, comments, but and you can certainly sign on to those and then sign on to letters to your representatives and senators. Um, but you know, I'm not I'm not going to take a political position on whether or not it's it's overreach, right? I'm not. That's a good business. That's a good business decision for you, David. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But the way I look at it, if, if, you, if you start with the idea that the data, that the user's data belongs to the user and you need to remove blockers to keeping the user's data from going elsewhere and being shared by the user, it stands to reason that your rewards data is also part of that, right? And the fee data is also part of that. Um, 
if, if you accept that the user's data belongs to them, which conceptually as a user, I kind of am into, right? But I, I, I understand that like the infrastructure doesn't exist today for that to, to, to just happen within a few months for even the biggest FIs, um, you know, by early next year, you know, early in 25, when, you know, the largest FIs are going to be, are going to have to comply with this. Um, so there's definitely going to be changes, right? And that's why there's this comment period now. So we don't know everything, but what, what I think we can, we should count on is that the data that's already being shared over aggregation rails is, is going to stay in scope. Nobody is, right. nobody significantly powerful enough is advocating to take that out of scope. Like that's not going to win the day. Right. And if, if I'm leading strategy at a credit union, I'm asking myself, okay, so I know there's going to be some regulatory boxes I have to check to get this done. I'm going to have to ask all of my vendors about, okay, how, who, who can help me with this? But I think the smarter question that I'm also going to ask myself and I'm going to ask my team is how can we act as data recipients as even more data is now available safely and securely from the competition? And if data is moving, anytime there's change, right, we know that's opportunity. There's going to be winners and losers. And I want to ask myself and I want to ask my, my team, how can my institution be a winner in this new world rather than simply being reactive and just find checking another box and, and probably paying another line item to my vendors, right? Which, yeah, that's going to happen, right? right? But how can you take that from being a cost to being an opportunity where you can actually grow your institution and serve your members even better? So walk me through that. How do you think... How do you think something like the proposed rule that's in 1033 enables an institution to grow and become healthier, right? Yeah. Um, any, any kind of scenario where that, where this makes it easier for especially smaller community institutions and gives them the, the information and data they need in order to be able to grow. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's twofold. I think one, one is offensive and one is defensive. So I'll start with the defensive one. So if, if you have to comply with your data being shared out, it is smart to think about, well, what are you going to do with reporting on the data that's being shared out? I'll give you an example. So plenty of institutions today have credit monitoring products available um, for, for all sorts of great reasons. But one of the great reasons to have credit monitoring is to see if your member just applied for a loan someplace else and never even applied with you, right? So what's going to happen now is if you are live on open banking, and by the way, this works today. Mm -hmm. If you are live on open banking today, when, you're use, when you've got a member who shares their data, say, with Rocket Mortgage, they're going to share that data and you're going to know about that weeks before it shows up on a credit report. And you'll know who they shared it with. That's exactly right. You will know okay. that it was shared by 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 Sally Joe to Rocket Mortgage on this date, and this was the data that was shared because you were a party to that data sharing, right? Okay. You were the one letting that happen and authenticating that Sally is who she says she is. So now, would it, wouldn't it be smart to have a daily or weekly report that lets you know anytime that your members linked an account someplace that has competitive offerings to you? right? That makes a ton of sense. Um, and then now all of a sudden there's a call list or an email list, right? And it gets really, really important. Um, so that's, that's the defensive side. The offensive side is what I alluded to earlier, where 
if you start using open banking to bring data into your institution from every place else that your existing and new members all already have financial relationships. Now, when a member sets up, say, auto pay for a new car loan, and that's the only, only product they have with you, right? It's an indirect member that might not have even known they were a member until after they bought the car and signed the paperwork, right? Like, let's be real. How many of us have had that, had that conversation? Yep. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that I was a member. What's this $5 share account, right? Like, right. I, had no, I, I had no idea this was, what? But it's a good loan on a good rate, and I like my car, and I move on, right? How do I set up payments? So as part of that payment cycle, right? We've seen some institutions on, on Constellation already doing this, where now asking the member to link their primary uh, FI, let's say it's Wells Fargo, because um, the, the account that you're gonna pay your auto loan or your mortgage is probably the place where your paycheck goes, right? Which is one of the big definitions of your primary checking account, right? And so what if you give the user the ability to link, not just to set up automatic payments, but then you also say, you, get, you give the member the opportunity, hey, would you like to share your account history so that we can better match you with better interest rates, savings, offers, rewards, et cetera, right? It's a value add to the member. It's super transparent about what you're doing. This kind of stuff can't be hidden in the small print. If you're gonna use the data for other things, you need to be open about it. It's the right thing to do anyway. But most people are gonna say yes. Yeah, if you can save me money, uh, either pay me a higher interest rate or you can help me get better rates on, on loans that I have elsewhere, let me know about it, right? And now when, when, you, when you do that, you get visibility to not just the account and routing number for NACHA purposes over at their Wells Fargo checking account. You actually get line of sight into every account they have at Wells Fargo. Any deposit accounts, any time to deposit accounts, the rates on them. You get visibility into any wealth accounts they have at Wells. You get visibility into any credit cards that they might have at Wells Fargo. Even and if now, they only connected their checking account. So the, the trick is you ask the user to, to share the rest of it. They don't have to do anything else. It's, it's literally just one more button they press and say, yes, please. Okay. Right? Yep. Um, now, now you've got visibility to it. Now, historically, we haven't as an industry given the user the opportunity to do this. Why? Because it costs money. Pure and simple, right? Linking an account is a one-time expense that allows you to now move money mm -hmm. um, if you're just verifying the account with the account routing number for Nacha. Right. But if you want to stay subscribed to see all of their other information, it costs more. Now, we're not talking a ton of money here, right? We're talking relatively modest amounts of money to solve what, what I often hear is like a top three priority, regardless of market cycle at every credit union in the country, which is how do I convert more indirect members into a direct relationship with us? How do I earn their deposit business? And the easiest way to do that is not flash your marketing. It is look at what they're doing already at their existing primary FI, and then send them a targeted communication with what you can do for them that's better, that's in their interest, that serves that member better than Wells Fargo. And it's not that hard. It's Wells Fargo. You can do better, right? <laughs> we all know this, right? Um, and it's only now with open banking that we can start thinking about doing this in a way that is cost-effective, that is safe, and that is secure. You know, one of the things, David, when, when we started Constellation that I probably was not prepared for was just the sheer number of attorneys that would be involved, right? You've got, I mean, the number of law firms and attorneys you get, even for a modest startup is amazing, right? So what are the, are there, are there proposals around 
the responsibilities of the parties participating in this to protect the data, to not misuse the data, to put limits on, you know, the liability for the data. Cause I could definitely see a case where, you know, an institution gets something from my credit union, right. Mm -hmm. To perform some service. They then go based on that information, go perform a service, but somehow they've misinterpreted my data. I mean, I, you know, data is so unique for each institution. Somehow they've misinterpreted my data and they think that I think this member's, um, you know, an A plus credit or something experience, but that's not, maybe what I, what we've, what the actual uh, experience has been. Am I liable for that, for their interpretation of my data and what that could lead to? I mean, does that open me up to a potential liability or are there controls like this proposed in the, in the rule? That's a, that's a really, really smart, smart question, Chris. And so num number one, there's nothing in the new rule that talks about how the, how the, so you have a date, um, a data provider, which is the home institution. You have what's called data access platform, which are aggregators that move the data around between different parties. And then you have a data recipient. And so that's the new institution or the FinTech that's getting the data from, right. from, from, from the provider. So the activities of the recipient um, do not create any liability for the provider. There, there can be liability um, for the access platform because they are the ones who are vouching for the recipients to follow certain rules and be kind of sub subject to certain levels of like security guidelines, et cetera, on, uh, and then maybe we're talking mostly InfoSec here. But so anyway, so the aggregator is responsible for that. Um, unless an FI wants to be its own kind of aggregator and handle all of that, which is just feels like a cost center and a, and, and a mess to me. But you brought up a really, really, really good, good point, Chris, around credit decisioning. So today, um, one of the major aggregators, Finicity, it has been for years a credit reporting agency. And so they allow for verification of income and employment over their data aggregation rails. Mm -hmm. And they charge extra for it for people that want to use. It's basically the same data from a different endpoint. And they charge you a whole bunch more for it because if a credit decision is being made from that data and it's wrong, there's a whole bunch of credit reporting agency things you have to do for correction, corrections, right? Um, and so Finicity is spun up to do that. Plaid announced a week or two ago their intent to become a credit reporting agency as well. Um, and unclear if anybody else in the industry is going to go down that path. Yodley has a, a credit product that helps to predict some things, but it's not designed to make the full credit decision. It's more designed to, oh, okay, these are folks that maybe are a better fit for a targeted offer, but they stay, they, they stay just, just shy of the credit reporting agency lines today. Um, but, you know, everybody, I think in that space, all of those big aggregators are looking at what are they going to do um, to help differentiate themselves as their basic service becomes a commodity, right? Um, is it premium data that's not? you know, in scope is it like business data, for example, wealth data. Is it um, credit decisioning? Is it other sorts of payments and fraud scoring that you could do? Um, yeah, but the, so the, the industry is kind of rapidly evolving in how they all want to differentiate themselves. Yeah, everyone's going to try to flow to where they think the money is, right? That's yeah, that, that's the way sure. things happen. So you've mentioned two things. You've, you've mentioned that uh, institutions can contact the CFPB and provide comment on the rule. Yep. 
You've talked about um, you know credit unions engaging and thinking about open banking as part of their 24 or 25 strategic planning process. Are there other steps or resources that the credit unions ought to be accessing to learn more about open banking and what the potential impacts of that are going to be? Yeah, I think it talk to your 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 closest partner vendors, the folks that are you know the the first phone call that you make as you're thinking about tackling a new digital problem, um, and ask them what they're doing on both sides, both as a data provider, which is sort of the regulate the really heavy regulated side, and as a data recipient, which is in in scope for the regulation, but all of the rails there kind of exist today. You can start taking advantage of getting data from <clears throat> Wells Fargo or US Bank today. Um, and what do they do to make it easier, safer to bring data in and to make that data available out? Mm -hmm. Okay. If an institution is interested in contacting you, David, or Fingal, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, um, pretty easy to find. Uh, Fingal.com. <laughs> Just look for the white glasses. Just look for the white glasses. That's... <laughs> That's fair. I, I'm, I'm on way too many airplanes, Chris. Uh, yeah, white glasses, but it's fingol.com. Uh, and I'm sure that a link will pop up like right here. Um, or you can find me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm David Nohe. Uh, if you search N-O-H-E as in no, he didn't, I'm probably the first result that you'll get <laughs> on LinkedIn. And you'll see white glasses and you'll be like, oh, it's that guy. But not the first thing that will come up when you, if you search no, he didn't on Twitter. Right? True. True. <laughs> Excellent. David, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about to talk to us about uh, 1033 and open banking, what the implications are. I really appreciate it. There is nobody, I think, in the business uh, who knows more about this than you. So the fact that you could take a little bit of time and talk with us and our viewers, I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Oh, absolutely, Chris. I love the work that, you know, you, you've dedicated your whole career to helping members and community-focused institutions, specifically credit unions, better work with each other. I let the members get better served by the credit unions and the credit unions better understand and in a financially sustainable way, mm -hmm. right, be able to serve their community and grow and stay relevant because you and I both know how important credit unions are to communities all across this country and in other countries for that matter. But it is, there's such an important piece of, you know, I feel like achieving the American dream. Uh, so just thank you for the work that, that you and your whole team at Constellation do. Well said, my friend. Well said. Thank you very much, David. Have a great day. Of course, you too. Bye. Thank you very much for watching this episode of the FinTech Combine. I really appreciated David Noe's time for coming in and talking to us about this proposed rule. If you are interested in following us, please like or follow on all of your podcast platforms. And don't forget to sign up for our Discord server to keep the conversation going. We will see you next time.